be dismissed through that door to children in worship, which will be uh, for them if they don't want to sit through the sermon, not open to adults, but uh, for children who do not want to sit through the sermon, uh, they'll just be uh, getting a Sunday school lesson uh, in the prayer room over there. Uh, so any takers, head to that door. And once again, good morning to the 9 a.m. folks. You are welcome for your extra hour of sleep. To the 11 a.m. folks, I'm very sorry, but, but I am happy to see you. But as payback, we've talked to some people, and we're rolling back the clocks next Sunday. So even though we're getting here at 10 next Sunday, you will get your extra hour of sleep. Don't ask, don't ask what we had to do. Well, this morning, we've got a long passage, and it's a pretty serious passage. So I'm going to open with something that's a little lighter, which is the Bengals. I'm sorry, how many wins do they have? Uh, well, it's actually, it's true of all fandom, and we could get into politics, but we're not gonna, we're gonna leave that alone. So I just wanted to talk about Bengals fans, and if you had to say, who is our arch nemesis as the Bengals? It would be Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Right. So, I know. And there's, there's, now see, that's, there's an important point here, because there, I knew that there's at least one Steelers fan in our congregation. And so in 2013, there's a long-time Steelers player who was traded, uh, tra- acquired by the Bengals. can't remember if it was a trade or free agency, but his name was James Harrison. Now, the interesting thing about fandom is that for six or seven years, however long he played for Pittsburgh, every Cincinnati fan would watch him sack our quarterback, make a great tackle, and we'd say, ah, oh, he's overrated. He's not very good. You know, he doesn't deserve to be in the Pro Bowl. And then as soon as the colors on his jersey change from yellow and black to orange and black, and he comes here and makes a tackle, what do we all say? Oh, he's a great player. Now imagine if God came to you in a vision and said, here's what I want you to do this Sunday. I want you to, back in 2012 when he's still wearing a Steelers uniform and we're doing the the rivalry between Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, he says, I want you to cheer for James Harrison's tackles because you love football. Not because of the colored jersey he's wearing or what team he's on, but I want you to do it for the love of the game. Now, I know God would never do that to any of us, but just hypothetically. Now, that is the type of shift. In fact, quite a bit more than that is what we're going to see in the text this morning. And what I want you to be on the lookout for as we read scripture this morning is this. When we cling to our own culture our own upbringing, our own denomination, our own tradition, when we cling to our own culture more than we cling to Jesus, it is impossible for us to accomplish the work of Jesus. So Jesus has given his church work to do, but in order to accomplish that work, we have to lean more heavily into Jesus than we do in our own culture and our own upbringing. And that's, if you really, uh, to keep the analogy alive, if you really want to enjoy a football game, one, you don't cheer for the Bengals, but second, uh, you learn to appreciate whatever good is going on in the game so you can enjoy the sport of football rather than just enjoying your team. And as we all know from uh, the last few weeks' sermon, and hopefully from every week's sermon, Jesus came on a mission to bring uh, to break down that which divides us. And so I'm going to keep all of that in mind as we read our scripture this morning. Now I have to warn you, the scripture is all of Acts chapter 10. And I'm going to read selections from it. I'll tell you what's in all of it. 
but I timed it, and it takes about 8 to 10 minutes to read all of it, so you're welcome. Uh, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, which is page 918 on your pew Bible, and uh, it will be on the screens, and uh, I'll tell you what is in the sections that I'm not reading, and then we will really uh, hone in and read uh, a couple sections here. But first, let me just open us in prayer. Father God, thank you for those that you have uh, called and gathered here this morning. We pray uh, that we would be uh, united in one mind and in one spirit as we open your word this morning. We pray that you would open it to us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would apply it to our hearts, to our minds, and to our lives. And we pray that uh, we would continue to grow together as a people following after you and bear witness uh, to the work that you came to accomplish on the cross which is to buy yourself a new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and uh, be a display of God's design for the world. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we're going to start in verse 9, and uh, so that'll be on the screen for a second, but I just want to tell you what's in verses 1 through 8. So we have two characters that this story follows, and the first one is Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. Now, if you're reading... The, the book of Luke and Acts in the first century and you hear the word Roman, what does that mean? It's the Steelers, yes. It's the bad guys. No offense. <laughs> Steelers fan. I had to check with her. Yes, but these are the oppressors. This is not only, not, it's not like it's just a person who happens to be from Rome and it's like, well, maybe they're innocent. No, this is a Roman centurion, which means he commands a hundred Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers are the ones oppressing the Jewish people. And so, when you see this, he gets the weirdest description you could possibly imagine. Uh, he's in the area that governs, governs Judea, which, by the way, if you look back at Acts chapter 1, Jesus, before he, his ascension, tells them where their mission is going. It's going to Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. And so, in the first uh, first ten chapters or so, you see... Uh, the, the church thriving in Jerusalem, and now it's stepped out into Judea, and it's about to go even further than that. But uh, Cornelius is not a, a Jew, but he is a Gentile. But when we meet him, he is praying to God, and a messenger from God comes to him and says in a vision that he should send out for a man named Peter. and tells him where Peter's staying. He says, send some people out to get him, bring him to this house, and then listen to what he has to say to you. So Cornelius does this. He sends people to Peter, and then we pick up in verse 9, which says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour to pray, which is noon, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have not eaten, I have never eaten anything unclean that is uncommon, or that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. Now, you'll notice a pattern emerging with Peter. It takes usually three times for something to sink in. Whether it's him denying Jesus three times, him asking, uh, him being asked by Jesus 
three times uh, if he loves him. And now uh, God himself comes to Peter, shows him this, and says, Peter, I want you to do this. And Peter says, no, God, I'm too holy for that. And God says, excuse me. <laughs> and shows it to him two more times and then lifts it away. Now, most of us can now figure out what God is saying, at least in the very literal sense. In the next verse, I love. Now, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he uh, had seen might mean. Well, he's going to figure it out real soon. So don't don't discount Peter yet. And so uh, in verses 17 to 23, which is the next uh, section there that I'm not going to read to you, but I will summarize, Peter's wondering about what this could possibly mean. What does it mean that this sheet descended and uh, he was told to kill and eat unclean animals, which he's forbidden to do in Leviticus 11. And uh, at that time, Cornelius's men arrive, the men that Cornelius sent to bring Peter back to him. They arrive and Peter says, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. It's not it's not proper for a Jewish person to enter into the house of a Gentile because they are not clean. And a voice of the Lord comes to Peter. The Spirit says to him, go with Cornelius because God has sent them to you. And so Peter does. And then we pick up, and I will read the rest of this chapter to you now, verses 24 to 46, because there's just no way to summarize all that happens here. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. And, and, and uh, for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This is the word of the Lord. I got carried away. I meant to stop where the slide did. That's not the slide person's fault. That's mine. But it is an exciting story because this is where the church moves. They transition into being what we now recognize as the church's complete mission to Jews and Gentiles. Very few of us would be here this morning in this church as a Christian church if this chapter had never happened. And there are two things that I want to call your attention to here in the, in the text this morning. I think the big one is the second one. But the first thing that I want to point out here is this character Cornelius. He is what I would call an unbelieving believer, which is frighteningly common. Now, if we listen to what Luke has to say about Cornelius, I didn't read this to you, but I'm going to share uh, the verses with you. He says that Cornelius was a devout man, a God-fearer. He gave alms generously, which is uh, gifts to the poor. Gave to the poor generously. He prayed to God continually. He had a divine revelation from God. God came and spoke directly to Cornelius. And in verse 22, he's described as upright. Once again, described as God-fearing. And it says that he is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. However, he is not a Christian. He is not following after Jesus, at the beginning of this chapter anyway. He converts during this chapter But it not it amazing the resume he can put together without actually following Jesus? Now, this term, God-fear, that Luke uses twice was uh, a quasi-technical term in the first century. It referred to non-Jews who were sympathetic to Judaism. And they, and I'll quote from a commentator here, it says, They did not submit to circumcision or observe the Torah in its entirety, but they did agree with the ethical monotheism of the Jews and attended their synagogue services, meaning they agreed with the Jewish people morally and they agreed with them that there's only one God and they even occasionally went to church, but they weren't Christians. Now this should make you pause and rethink what it means to be a Christian because it is very easy. Our society has created an environment uh, that we're emerging from, actually, and leaving behind to some extent. But we've created an environment where it is easy to wear Christian camouflage. It's easy to say, oh, I agree with Christians, you know, morally. I don't think you should kill or, uh, you know, adultery. You know, that's bad. We can, we agree morally, and I'll even go to church every once in a while. But I'm not committed to following after Jesus. And that should make us pause and reflect, because sometimes... We are more persuaded by this external behavior than by what it actually means uh, to be a Christian. So a person who uh, spends a lot of time with Christians is well thought of by Christians, which, by the way, it says Cornelius is well thought of by the whole Jewish nation, which might be a hyperbole, but it certainly proves a point that every Jew who knew him thought well of him. They recognize that we're on the same page. We both believe there's only one God. We're on the same page morally. We agree on that stuff, but... Still not a follower of Jesus. And so, the question for us here is, are we too easily deceived by someone's outward appearance 
or behavior. Now, some of us would even chalk it up to optimism. We'd say, well, we like to believe the best of people. And so when they tell us that they're a Christian, we just accept it. But that's would have actually been the most harmful thing Peter could have done with Cornelius. It's to let Cornelius go on thinking that he was following after God when actually he had not taken the most crucial step. And so the question is, are you willing to preach the gospel even to people who think that they're already Christians? Now, on one hand, that's a trick question. Because what Barb just led us in, we confess our sins every week, and we've, we uh, acknowledge the forgiveness of Jesus that comes to us in the time of assurance of forgiveness. And that is the gospel. Every week, we get up and preach the gospel to Christians or to people who say they're Christians. And so there's nothing offensive about sharing the gospel because uh, as uh, since we're, I think, we're either on or very close to Reformation Sunday, and the great reformer Martin Luther, when he uh, started the Protestant Reformation, the opening words were, all of life is repentance. So even a Christian never graduates from recognizing their need for God. And so there's nothing offensive about sharing the gospel to a Christian. And in fact, we find that sometimes when we share with people who think that they are Christians, they are not. And in fact, I had this happen to me um, just a couple weeks ago. Now, many of you know, especially if you go to second service, that uh, in addition to pastoring, I am also a musician. And I play with the worship band a lot. In fact, I'm playing bass this morning. And uh, Cincinnati has this great network of musicians, and uh, we get on uh, Craigslist and Facebook, and we trade and swap and buy gear from each other, and uh, I meet all kinds of people. And of course, in America, one of the first questions you ask anyone when you meet them is, what do you do? And then I say, well, actually, I'm a pastor, and I'm going to use this to play at church. And sometimes they get this look that's like, oh boy, here it comes. But this guy that I met a couple weeks ago, kind of responded with enthusiasm. And he said, oh, you know, he said, I've read the Bible cover to cover, uh, and I love Jesus, and uh, I believe that everybody should love God and love their neighbors themselves. It's the greatest commandment. And uh, and he believes that, you know, if you do all that, if you, love, if you forgive other people and you love God and you love your neighbor, then you can really genuinely, truly hope for the best. <laughs> he said that. Now that. And I didn't laugh. Because that's actually not funny at all. That's terrifying. To live under the guilt-crushing performance mode of I have to love and forgive as much as Jesus in order to love and be forgiven. Now, Jesus does tell us that we are to love and forgive, but it's in response to being saved. And so it would have been very easy for me to say, you know, this guy said he's a Christian. He believes I'm a Christian. Who am I to tell him he's not a Christian? Which I didn't. Tell him he's not a Christian. But I said, I just tried to nudge him in there. And I said, you know, uh, I listened to him talk for an hour, by the way. And I uh, I didn't ask for him to speak for an hour. I just wanted to buy an amplifier from him. But um, <laughs> I told him I was a pastor, so that comes with an hour of conversation. And in the, at the end of this conversation, I said, I said, it sounds like you really have connected with the words of Jesus. You take very seriously that we are to forgive one another, that we're to love God, we're to love our neighbor. And I said, but the thing that makes it good news, because all of that is good advice. That is good religious advice. Love other people, uh, you know, don't break the law, don't cheat, don't steal, don't, don't commit adultery, don't murder people. That is all good advice to how, how to live a good life. But good news 
is that Jesus has died for your sins. You are forgiven from the moment you start following him. And all of your actions are not trying to earn that forgiveness, but it's actually in response and in gratitude. Now, that's good news. And I shared that with him, and he didn't like it at all, which was just completely heartbreaking to me. Because I'm sharing with this man, I'm like, he's got all the hard parts down. It's actually the easiest part. Because we plead with Christians every single week who believe and follow after Jesus to go do the things that Jesus has told us to do. This guy wants to do those things, but doesn't actually want to admit his need for Jesus. Wants to try to make it on his own steam. And I wonder if that's where Cornelius was at the beginning of this chapter. He's not trusting in the grace of God. He is behaving like the Jewish people. He is behaving morally acceptable He's made good social ranks with them, but he has not committed himself to Jesus. And Christianity is not fundamentally about religious achievement. It is the good news that Jesus died to bridge the gap between us and God and rose again to defeat sin and death. And when we recognize our standing before God, we see the necessity of the work of Jesus. And the rest of the Christian life is done in grateful obedience rather than a desperate attempt to become good enough. And so this is the good news part of the gospel. It is not good religious advice. It is news. When you share the good news with someone, you are sharing like a news story. This is what has happened. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died and he is resurrected. And following in Jesus results in new life and eternal life. Now for the second Part of the sermon. So that's the good news. So the, the, ter- the title, title of the sermon this morning is Good News for Everyone. So that's the good news part. We see the gospel being preached to Cornelius, and we see Cornelius and his whole household's life being changed. But now we get to the second two words, for everyone. So point one, that's the good news. It's the unbelieving believer comes to belief. No one's going to laugh at that wording. Okay. The unbelieving believer comes to belief. Meaning, he looks like a believer, he acts like a believer, but he's not a believer, and now he's come to belief. And now, we get this vision of Peter in the sheet, that uh, it took Peter three viewings of this uh, to understand the point. I'm hoping it will take us a little bit less, uh, but I'm willing to be at least as gracious to you as God is to Peter. Because, Peter, this sheet descends, and these animals are on it, and the command from Jesus is to kill and eat But that command makes no sense at all to Peter. Because it would have violated Jewish food laws. Peter had lived his whole life, and in fact, Peter and everyone Peter knew. All of his friends, all of his family were Jewish, and they lived their life according to this food code found starting in Leviticus 11. It goes for a few chapters. And it says, you know, this is clean, this is unclean, this is common, don't eat that. Uh, and there are various reasons given for those at different times. But the main reason that you see in the book of Leviticus is God saying, I called your people out of Egypt. I led you guys to this land, and you are going to live for me. You're going to live in a holy way, that, which just means set apart, in a way that is distinguished from the rest of the world. And he says, and the ways that you'll be distinguished are by my law and you know by these uh, clean and unclean foods and uh, lifestyle, but now as Christians, Christians starting in Acts chapter 2, have received the Holy Spirit as the distinguishing mark 
of the people of God. It's not about the external appearance of clean or unclean food. It is about the mark of the Holy Spirit living in the life of each believer. And the command now is no longer to be separate from the nations, but to go into all the nations. So do you see how... Now, in a sense, this is all according to God's plan all along, and God always has his eye on the other nations. But uh, starting at the Great Commission and in Acts 1.8, Jesus sends his followers out... Um, to believe and to uh, proclaim to the nations. Um, and basically what God is saying here is that nothing like this, nothing like food, nothing like Jewish culture is to get in the way of fellowship with Gentiles. Now, Peter embraces this rather quickly, and we can be really impressed with Peter in this chapter, and in a sense we should. However, I want to make this point just on the side. Uh, getting the truth and living the truth are two different things. Now, you may hear what I'm saying right now and say that God has torn down all cultural barriers that separate people from people, and they are not to divide us anymore in the family of God. Now, you can hear that, and you can believe it, in a sense. You can acknowledge the truth of it, but not live it. And Peter here, we see him acknowledge the truth of it, and we see him live into it for a minute. But I... If you're a note taker, just jot down Galatians chapter 2. Go look at that later today because you will see that later on, Paul has to call Peter out in chapter 2 of Galatians because once high-ranking Jews come around again, he stops spending time in Gentile believers' households. He won't eat meals with them in front of high-ranking Jews because he's won back over to his culture over the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean... Peter lost his faith entirely. It just means he took a step out of obedience, into disobedience. And Paul calls him back for all of us to read for all eternity in Galatians chapter 2. So don't make us write about you in a letter. It's the lesson. But that's also, by the way, the gift of the church. That's the gift of the people of God is he has given us each other to call us back to the gospel. And I think I said this last week, but you can never hit a point where you say, I read the gospel, I understand it, I know how to read the Bible, so now I can go off in isolation by myself. I don't need a church, I don't need people around me, I can follow Jesus. No, you can't. You have to have other people around because Peter shows us right here. You can get it for a while, but the drift that will happen when you're left by yourself uh, can be uh, costly to the church. Now, it's very interesting to me, uh, and I am only bringing this up because I know that some of you about a hundred or so of you, are in our adult Sunday school curriculum, which is about uh, uh, our small group ministry, which is uh, the Gospel Project, and you just went through the book of Jonah. Now, for those of you who don't know Jonah, I will not tell you that whole story right now, but in short, Jonah re- retreated to the city of Joppa to avoid preaching to Gentiles. God called him to preach to Gentiles, and he retreated to Joppa. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter is prodded to leave Joppa to go preach to the Gentiles. There's something about Joppa where they don't want to reach Gentiles. But whether it's Jonah or Peter, but Jonah is moving to there in retreat and Peter is moving away from there. And we see that really summarizes the shift that's happening biblically here. And the interesting thing here is now, the, one of the ways we know that Cornelius isn't a believer is that he's a little confused theologically Peter enters his house in verse 24, and in verse um, 25, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. 
Now, I don't care how famous a pastor is. No matter who we invite here as a guest preacher, you should not bow down and worship them. I don't know if we've been clear on that, but now we have. So I don't want to see it. But that is not a sign of someone who understands the deepest theological beliefs of the faith. And so Peter then says, get up, I'm just a man, but I am going to preach to you about Jesus. And he does so, and you'll notice Peter has preached several sermons in the book of Acts, and all of them are chock full of Old Testament quotations. Starting in Acts chapter 2 and and 4, we see him preaching and quoting from Joel 2, from the prophets, uh, from the Psalms. And here he does not quote from the Old Testament once. Why? Likely because he is aware of his audience. He's preaching to Gentile believers who have not internalized all of the Old Testament, saying, I'm not going to say things that are going to alienate them. That doesn't mean they don't have to learn eventually. It just means right now, as I'm presenting the gospel, I'm going to work off of what they know, rather than make them try to understand everything I understand and then preach to them. So we see a little bit of accommodation there, and then you'll see even more as we continue, and you see Paul preach at Mars Hill. But Peter undergoes this transformation of his views of the Gentiles, and a Roman centurion is converted. His entire household, in fact, is converted to Christ. And so one question for you to ask yourself today is, who is it in your life that would benefit if your views were transformed? Who in your sphere of influence, who in your circle, your social circle, whether it's at work, school, or uh, your neighbors, if your view of them being equally accessible to God, equally deserving to hear the gospel preached to them, who around you would be transformed if you were transformed? If you really, really understand what's being preached in this passage, you will know uh, exactly who could benefit from you recognizing what Peter recognizes, which is that you don't have to have been raised in the church. You don't have to know all of our beliefs and our catechisms and all our jargon. But how can you preach to them in such a way that doesn't rely on that jargon? How can you preach in such a way that they understand that they are acceptable, not because of their religious background or pedigree, but because of Jesus? And as we see Peter preaching... He sees probably the most remarkable thing any preacher has ever seen while they're preaching. Before he even finishes his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers among the circumcised, which means Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, and they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, where have you seen something like that before? It was earlier in Acts. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, we preached on it about a month ago. I think Daryl preached on that. And this is the exact same display. Now, I just want to pause for a second to say, this is not trying to establish what is normal for all Christians who ever come to Christ. But the reason this is happening is because only an undeniable demonstration of the divine power could overrule all objections. And God provided precisely that with the Holy Spirit coming down. And so when Peter sees this, Peter was there in Acts chapter 2, and he said, we who were Jewish believers uh, following Christ and the Holy Spirit fell on us and they were speaking in tongues and were doing all these other things. And now these Gentile believers who have not been circumcised, they've not come through all the Jewish, Jewish rites of passage, but the Holy Spirit decided to fall on them anyway. Meaning, how could we not consider them equal? If what it means to be a Christian is to follow Jesus and to have a life in the Holy Spirit, 
and God has done that without all of the religious pedigree of Judaism, then who am I to get in the way? So the Holy Spirit here isn't just for show. This isn't just an impressive trick. This is to demonstrate to Peter in a way that he can take this. And you want to see how pivotal this chapter is, by the way. Luke thinks it's so important. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, is a Gentile. He's the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. So this one, I think, hits particularly close to him because the only way he becomes a believer is by this happening. So he records this chapter, and then he retells Peter telling the story in chapter 11. And then they reference this again in Acts chapter 15. So three times in one book does this story come up because in Peter's mind, this is definitive proof that God does not care about your religious pedigree. He cares about if you're following after Jesus. If you've been forgiven of your sins and brought to life in Jesus. And so what God has declared okay, humans have no right to insist is not okay. Peter's vision and experience in Cornelius' house emphasize that no one should be barred from the opportunity to hear the gospel and receive salvation. In Judaism, the uncircumcised Cornelius can be at best only a God-fearer, someone who kind of sympathizes, someone who rides the coattails of Judaism. But as a Christian, he does not have second-class status. He is fully accepted as a brother in Christ. And the final thing that I want to point out to you in this passage here, which is... um, The end of verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now this, once again, is demonstrating the need of the church. Now they just got the Holy Spirit in a powerful, visible display. And many people would try to tell you, that's enough. You know, all I need is just me and Jesus. Or I've got the power of the Holy Spirit now. But they say, no, Peter, why don't you stick around for a few days? We've got a lot to learn still. You know, we need you to teach us all that you can teach us while you're here, because even though we've received the Holy Spirit, even though we're Christians, we now need fellowship of Christians more than ever. It's not something that they said, oh, we got the Holy Spirit, now we don't need people anymore. Nope, you need Holy Spirit and the community of believers all together. And so, as we talk about good news for everyone, and in light of even our congregational meeting that's coming today, there are... Just two things I want to share with you. The first is this. I love, personally, the organ and hymns and the choir. And to me, now this is not even something that I chose, but to me that feels like church. It just does. That, That feels like church. It's what I grew up with, and that's what I was raised in, and that feels good to me. But I also play guitar, and I love contemporary music. I love playing with the band and with Daryl and all of these great musicians that we bring up here every single Sunday. I love both of those things. And that's the first thing I want to tell you. The second thing is this. God is most glorified when Jesus is proclaimed, the gospel is preached, and new people from every culture are drawn to Jesus. That is what glorifies God most. And so, if the first thing I told you ever gets in the way of the second thing, guess which one has to go? The first thing, even though it's what feels like church to me, even though it's what I personally love, if what I love ever gets in the way of God's mission, then God's mission is the immovable object here. Now, I love my own preferences. I do. I'm personally attached to them. That's why I call them my preferences. But if I'm not willing to sacrifice my preferences for 
reaching new people from every culture, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every generation for Jesus, then I'm not really following after Jesus. Because I've grown to love something more than I love God. And so the question you have to ask yourself, and we have to ask ourselves, is am I or are we establishing cultural barriers that block people from Jesus' mission? And that's the question that we will be wrestling with for years. You're never done wrestling with it. Because as soon as you start doing something for three weeks, it's a tradition in a church, by the way. We, we can't stop making traditions. But what we can do is make sure that we're always following after Jesus' mission, no matter what our culture is. And so even though I personally love the way we do contemporary music, and I love the organ, and I love the choir, and I love hymns, those feel like church to me, I have to acknowledge that to the majority of Christians alive, at least one of those doesn't feel like church to them. For the majority of Christians who have ever lived, neither of those feel like church. These are not long-established traditions that God gave us in the book of Acts. They are what we have come to do. In fact, the organ was first brought into church to draw the kids in. Because the kids were listening to organ music and they said, well, great, we want kids to listen to church music, so we'll bring an organ in. And I think the guitar came in in about the same way, just a a few centuries later. Um, And so we see that God can work through our cultural traditions, but we are not to be so attached to them that they become barriers. And right now, as a church, we are really good at reaching the people that we have already reached. We're really good at uh, accommodating our own preferences. And I and I'm notice notice my choice of pronouns. That's our and our and we. That includes me. I'm not I'm preaching first and foremost to myself here. We are really good at reaching people who have our preferences. And most of them are here this morning. But what about those that we haven't reached yet? What can we afford to do to reach people who don't know Jesus? Or, in light of this passage, uh, what can't we afford to do to reach people who don't know Jesus? At the beginning of Acts chapter 10, it was illegal for Paul to enter the house of a Gentile. By the end of Acts chapter 10, he's having lunch and staying with them and teaching them Christian theology for days at a time. What can't we afford to do? Is God's more mission more important than the color of our walls? Is it more important than the genre or volume of our music? Is it more important than whether or not the preacher is wearing jeans? Which I'm not, by the way. And if so, then we need to realign ourselves with God's greatest desire for his church, which is to be a light to all nations, to all people, and to preach his gospel and lift the cross high. Would you please join me in prayer?